or your own experience of your heart opening in compassion either towards yourself or towards another. So it's very, uh, it's wonderful and a privilege to, to explore the theme of compassion. It's at the center of the expression of the Dharma, of these teachings. We know that very, very often it's said that the Dharma has two wings, the wings of wisdom and compassion that we, as it were, we, uh, we move in that way. We move like this um, beautiful bird through, through space, bearing and driven, guided by wisdom and compassion. And so it's, it's wonderful to focus on the compassion aspect. And they may actually not be so separate, but we, on the way, we seem like we have two wings, as the bird gets stronger, it may actually be just one wing <laughs> that's moving through the sky. Um, having just spent a week with Sylvia, uh, she says that her practice become, has become very simple now, that it's a practice really of saying, how can I develop <coughs> clear seeing and an open heart in this moment? It's continually asking that question, how can I have clear seeing and an open heart in this question. And if the open heart goes through different uh, versions, it may really just be one open heart, but we know it in different forms. And these are, in the Buddhist tradition, these are expressed through the teaching called the Brahma-vihara, or the divine abidings. The different states of the heart that actually are very interrelated, but that seem to have different nuances. And so the Brahma-vihara, Brahma being the, uh, I guess, the king of the gods, and the vihara being the temple or the place. So it's really the divine abidings. And when you read the, the text, you see a lot of the more accomplished meditators living at the time of the Buddha, they would do their morning alms rounds, and then they would just go off into the forest and they'd hang out in the divine abidings. And you read the text and they just say they sat there and they just sort of suffused one league to the right and one league to the left and one league in front and back with loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. And they just, just have the feeling that they're kind of sitting there radiating good vibes <laughs> uh, in all directions. And, but there, there are a little bit different nuances. And the first loving kindness is the way that the open heart wishes well, you might say, to, to every being. That, that's that quality of uh, meeting each of us and wishing well and wishing that each of us will have happiness or wishing that the deer or the lizard or the, the, the trees in the forest will be well, will, be, will prosper, will, will have... Um, their own kind of happiness, we might say. 
And when that wishing well meets difficulty or suffering, there's compassion. And so compassion is in some ways an expression of this primal heart energy, but it's a little bit different expression because it's in the presence of suffering. And similarly, the third of the Brahma-vihara, mudita, or sympathetic joy, is what happens when this open heart meets a tree that's doing very well (laughs) or a person that's doing very well. There is a kind of a, a, a radiating wish that the wellness will continue, which is mudita. And it's this uh, expansion of one's own happiness. And uh, it's said that the Dalai Lama once said that if you really practice sympathetic joy and, and your own happiness can meet the happiness of others and wish for their happiness um, and get more bright when they're happy, your own chances for happiness are, um, the odds are increased by about six billion. <laughs> And so it's, um, it's a useful practice. <laughs> um, I think this is called altruistic self-interest. <laughs> and, and then the fourth of the Brahmi-vihara is equanimity, which is really the, uh, the balancing factor to the first three. It's because we, when we are in loving-kindness or compassion or uh, sympathetic joy, there is a danger that we get somewhat attached to the outcome that we wish for. And it's the equanimity factor, which I love this marvelous way that these come together as a system. It's really so um, sort of wise, we might say psychologically, or in terms of the sophistication of understanding the mind and the heart. But equanimity is the balance, you know, and they balance each other so that the, uh, the open heart can sometimes get a little lost if, it, if the outcome isn't what it wants. And it's equanimity balances that. Equanimity can get a little dry and separated from things, sort of get above the fray, be overly cerebral or analytical. And it's the qualities of the open heart in loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy which balance out the equanimity. As you're listening to this, you may gather that this is another way of talking about wisdom and compassion, and that they're understood as being in dynamic balance. We can ask ourselves if our if our own uh, hearts are getting too attached to outcome. Maybe we need more of the wisdom or the equanimity practice or development, and vice versa. If we're finding ourselves maybe being quite wise but a little bit disconnected or overly um, separated, it could be that we need more of the, the heart opening. And so it's a really, it's a beautiful balance that it can really be a, a wonderful guide for our practice. Literally, the word karuna, which is the word for compassion, means in its etymology, the quivering of the heart in relationship to pain or suffering. It's the natural opening of the heart when there's difficulty. And this is really all that compassion is. You know, in some ways, I think the premise or the finding is very simple. It's that our hearts, when they're not confused or fearful or um, covered over, 
actually very simply and naturally respond to suffering. You know, which is something I think we see at times in the world, particularly when there are crises, certain kinds of crises. You know, when we see, like after 9-11 in New York, you know, we could see this natural wanting to help, wanting to respond to, to difficulty. Or maybe some of you experienced uh, after the earthquake in San Francisco in 1989, you know, or just any situation in need, maybe um, sometimes in a community when someone's in need, just everyone helps out. And, it, you know, it feels, doesn't it feel so wonderful actually to do that? It feels like this is, sometimes it feels like this is what, um, this is what life is about, just to be able to respond very simply without self-image or pretension just to the needs that are before one. And I think this is really all that compassion is. But I have about another half hour in the talk, so there must be a little bit more. <laughs> um, we could we could stop there, but let me actually let me before I because what we have still to talk about is why compassion is hard, what stands in the way of compassion, and how we develop it. Of course, that's the rest of the story, right? Would that we would just when there was suffering in ourselves or in others, would that there was just compassion. But for some reason, that's hard for us. And so we have to, we have to come to classes. <laughs> and we have to work together as a community to um, share our experiences and our insights. Well, before going on to, to talking about why it's difficult, I wanted to, to just give a few other examples which I think really express compassion beautifully. Uh, in the Zen tradition, there's a wonderful account of a dialogue, I think between two brothers, which occurs. And they're discussing the Bodhisattva of Compassion whom we know uh, in India is Avalokitesvara and in China is Kuan Yin. And I think we... This is, this is our friend. And um, in, in many of the uh, statues, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, or the Bodhisattva being the being dedicated to the awakening of oneself and others at the same time. Very inspiring figure of compassion. And the Bodhisattva of Compassion is often personified as having a thousand hands that each have eyes. And the eyes, yeah, right, the eyes see all the difficulties in the world and the hands act in the world. And in this dialogue between these two brothers, one of them asked, I think the younger one asked the older one, what are the actions of the Bodhisattva of Compassion like? And the older brother says, it's like one of those hand reaches out and arranges, rearranges the pillow in the middle of the night. Isn't that, an, isn't that an incredible image? Didn't say, go saves hundreds and thousands of people. <laughs> you know, who are in drastic need. It's, a, it's rather a very simple and subtle and everyday and ordinary and intimate action. It's, it's helping the pillow to be a little more comfortable for the head and neck in the middle of the night. 
And that's what compassion is likened to. The difficulty is, is that we don't want to open up to what's painful. We don't want to open up to suffering, either our own or that of others, in large part because of our conditioning. You know, I know that when I uh, began meditation, I was interested in insight. I was interested in understanding. And for, for quite a while, I thought, that I was having some very good insights and wonderful understanding. I thought suffering was for other people who were maybe less fortunate, I thought, than myself. You know, quite a lot of um, confusion and arrogance there, I I would say. And the practice being what it is, I soon discovered suffering. (laughs) Uh, uh, And I came to, you know, I came to actually probably to learn, especially in my first few years of practice, I probably learned more about compassion than I learned about than I learned about understanding. I thought that I was in there for one reason, and I probably learned how better how to open to suffering, especially my own. Because in some ways I didn't I didn't want to and I didn't even in some ways have the concept or I didn't know what it was about. And it's it's um difficult to open to suffering because our usual tendency is what? When something painful occurs, we want it to be gone. We want what the painful experience to be um, out of our experience. And we don't, really, we don't really want to be around suffering. And so it's that conditioning which actually makes compassion hard, either towards ourselves or towards others, that and it also means that in some ways being with our own suffering is a training ground and a doorway for compassion because first of all we have to learn how to be um, compassionate towards ourselves so the training the training is to learn how to be present with what's painful with what's difficult you know we have this uh, one one way this is expressed in the teachings of the Buddha, he says that in some ways our practice is like this. There are, each of us have a certain amount of pain in our life. And he says that's like we have this uh, arrow that's, that's shot into us. And it's not great, you know, it's not nothing to necessarily write home about, but it's just the realities of life. I think I've used, I've, I've talked about this image before. The, the image of an arrow and the aim of practice is not to get rid of the first arrow. The aim of the practice is not to get rid of our pain. It's very fortunate that the texts still show that the Buddha, especially in his later life, had a bad back. You know, I, I love that. I mean, it's, it, you could imagine there were some people who would want to send, you know, who, on the, you know, publications board of the Sangha who would want to censor it and say, we can't have the Buddha having a bad back. <laughs> but nonetheless, it made it through the text and there are places in the text where it says, the Buddha says, you know, Ananda, can you give the talk tonight? My back's really acting up. Isn't that great? <laughs> I love, I think that's, that's very, very human. So it's clearly the aim isn't to get rid of pain and 
You know, when we're fully enlightened, we still have bad backs sometimes, right? Um, so what's the aim of practice if it's not to get rid of pain? It's, first of all, to be able to be present with pain. And then secondly, it's to not shoot a second arrow at ourselves or others because of the first arrow. That's where the practice comes in. We don't, we learn how to be present with pain so that we don't, as it were, pass on the pain to ourselves or others. Because the tendency is, if we cannot be with the pain, and after a while, some, some kinds of pain, like emotional pain, go into the unconscious if we can't be with them. You know, if there's some kind of pain, especially, you know, those people who are either therapists or have had therapy, which probably means virtually everyone here, this <laughs> uh, being, what, Northern California, um, we, we know that when we experience certain kinds of pain early on in our life, and for whatever reason we can't attend to them, usually because the pain is too much or not understandable or overwhelming or whatever, it tends to go into the unconscious where we form, what, defense mechanisms to ward off re-experiencing anything like that kind of pain. And thus we have a lot of defense mechanisms and we avoid a lot of things. And so the practice is to learn how not to shoot that second arrow and gradually over time we also are able to um, go, be able to go into pain enough so that some of the pain which may have been uh, established way in the past also starts to get released. And so we actually learn how to uh, not only not shoot any new arrows but learn how to uh, take the effects of the second arrow from a long time ago away or transform them. And so that's really the core of the practice. It's, it's learning how to be with uh, our pain and our suffering essentially without being reactive or as reactive as we might be. So that, that means that a large part of the practice is learning how to be with what's difficult, whether it's a knee pain or the difficult person that we explored over the last few weeks, or um, something that's difficult emotionally, or a difficult, you know, a difficult interaction, or learning some difficult news about someone else in the world, that a lot of the practice is learning how to be more skillful with that. First of all, it means to open up and to be able to be present with suffering. And this is, this is where the training comes in, because it's hard to do. As we do that as we can be with what's painful, there's a very natural compassion that arises, simply from being able to be present. It's not that we have to produce compassion, it simply seems to arise that as I, you know, as I attend more to what's painful in my own life rather than pushing it away, I start to learn a few things. First of all, I begin to learn that a lot of the reasons that it's difficult to be with what's painful is not because of the experience of pain itself, but it's because I'm scared of the pain. And many of us, I'm sure, have had experiences where we actually were incredibly fearful of being with a certain situation or stimulus or discussion, 
And most of what was difficult was our fear. And when we actually got to the situation and, and took that courageous step, it wasn't half or a hundredth of what we thought it would be. Has anyone had something like that experience? So it's actually when we start to be able to open to what's difficult, one thing we find out is that um, there's a tremendous amount of fear there that's sometimes quite out of proportion. It may be based in the past, quite out of proportion to what's actually present. Another thing we begin to learn as we open to that um, suffering is we start to get the sense that in some way it's not just us. In some way, what's difficult about human life or what's painful is something we share with other people. We start to see the ways that often when there's some kind of pain, we have a lot of stories which develop. We start to see those stories. A lot of those stories seem to imply that the reason that I'm suffering is because of my bad qualities. It's this very, I mean, we, we have this very strange tendency to form logically the statement, I'm suffering, therefore I'm bad. Compassion goes in completely the opposite direction, right? Compassion is, I'm suffering, let me be with you, or let me, you know, there's nothing about uh, being bad. In fact, more, um, I'm suffering, or you're suffering, you know, you're a wonderful human being who has this vulnerability to suffer. (coughs) And so part of what being able to go further into our pain or suffering tells us is something about the way that we, as I was saying last week, that we share, really share, seem to share one mind and one heart. It's almost like it's more the pain or the suffering of being human. It's fear or sadness or whatever. And of course, there is my own suffering, but there's also ways in, that, in which that's uh, shared with others. And we start to see that when we, when we explore suffering more. In some ways, there are two ways that compassion works. One, uh, one is a more internal feeling. We're with suffering, and we, as it were, feel with we have an internal resonance with what's difficult. That's one sense of compassion. Another sense is that we also respond. So we can think of a compassion as having two aspects. One is the internal resonance, and the second is the more external response, which may or may not occur. Sometimes we don't have the capability of that. But we can think of compassion as inclu- including both aspects. There's, um, there's a beautiful passage from the 5th century text called The Path of Purification, which has a number of pages about compassion practice. And this, this is what uh, Buddha Gosa says about compassion. When there is suffering in others, it causes good people's hearts to be moved. Thus, it is compassion. Or alternatively, it transforms other sufferings. It attacks and demolishes other sufferings. Thus it is compassion. Or alternatively, it is scattered upon those who suffered. It is extended to them by pervasion, meaning, I think, this sense of loving kindness extending outward to others. Thus it is compassion. Classically, there are 
um, near and far enemies of compassion. There's the near enemies or the qualities of loving kindness or uh, compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity that masquerade as the quality uh, as the qualities, but that are actually not authentic. And, e- and in the classical teachings, each of these uh, qualities has both a near enemy and far enemy. The near enemy of compassion is pity. It's some sense of being, um, really it's based on being separate and superior in some way. It's often implicitly based on some kind of aversion to suffering. So we can know know that, I was thinking about this, that we see a lot of this around funerals. Or even when people are ill or in difficulty, and people know, it's like we, people know that they want in some way to help, but the compassion maybe isn't so um, authentic or, or deeply based. And people just say things, right? People go to funerals, and it's hard to know what to say, and people try to say something, but it's often very awkward. You know, and it's, it may be a form of, it may actually come out as a kind of pity. There was, um, there was a story which I heard in the last week which, which illustrates this. There's a fellow who's in the Sangha who's been in a wheelchair for a long time. Some of you, some of you may know uh, Daniel, Daniel Barnes. Do people know Daniel? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Daniel tells the story of being in a supermarket a number of times, just in his local supermarket, and someone came up to him after seeing him in the supermarket with his wheelchair shopping and came up to him and said, I admire you so much for persevering. If I was in your situation, I would kill myself. (laughs) I think that's in the near enemy. (laughs) She thought she was being compassionate, right? But it, it, it clearly was based on not just a little bit of aversion, but a lot of aversion, a lot of difficulty. And so there are ways in which there are ways in which we try to, as we um, as we go deeper into our own difficulty and suffering, in many ways we be, be we become able to to touch others. We be, become able to work with others without manifesting that near enemy. I, I should say that the far enemy of compassion is cruelty, sort of the direct opposite of of um, Compassion is cruelty, and often this comes from a kind of uh, tremendous uh, inner pain that thinks that it can work itself out by inflicting pain on others. So there's something in even in cruelty, I think, which is an attempt to get to transform pain. You know, I. I was very affected seeing um, some programs by Bill Moyers uh, a, few, a few years ago, which were on, I think they were on the roots of violence, and they had interviews with teenagers who had murdered. And they, they were interviewed and asked, why did you kill? And person after person basically said, I was in so much pain, I wanted someone else to feel that pain. You know, it's that quality of what I was calling before, passing on the pain. So even cruelty we could say, is an attempt to, to, to transform pain. It's just a very deeply ignorant. That means that those people actually, if they could be shown a better way to deal with their pain, might be very receptive. It's not that they're evil people. There's just very, very deep confusion and deep pain. 
there that can manifest in cruelty. So how, how are we compassionate towards others? A lot of it, I think, comes from the ability to be with our own suffering. That if we can be present with ourselves when there's physical pain, when there's emotional pain, and simply hang out with that, it's something we cultivate in this practice, something we cult- can cultivate in our lives, not glorifying it, not thinking it's the best thing, you know, since margarine or something, uh, but just really just being able to be proud. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I think some old advertisement from <laughs> just flashed in. <laughs> hmm. As they say, it's all in there, isn't it? <laughs> um, but we become, we become somehow uh, able to be more and more present. I know this is true for myself, that it's almost like when someone has some kind of suffering, and I haven't really explored that in myself, I find myself sometimes a little afraid of it. But if I've explored a form of suffering at length in myself, it's like it resonates. It says, I know that, even if it's not completely matched, you know, that I know, I know that fear, you know, I know that fear, I know that sense that I was, uh, you know, that I was just judged really harshly by someone and it really stirred me up. I know that. I've sat with that. I've sat with anger, you know, or sadness or whatever. And so... Compassion practice is really, in part, an invitation to uh, be full with what's difficult with ourselves. You know, this isn't the. This is a vital form of practice, and not. It's not what is put on neon lights to advertise people to come to meditation centers, right? This is not the. This is not the easiest part of practice. This is not the most wondrous part of practice in terms of feeling uplifted, you know, all the time or feeling full of uh, love. It's a hard part of practice. But it's the kind of practice which issues in being able to be with others and be, and be compassionate and be present to what's there. And it's so, it's so valuable to be able to do that oneself or just, you know, when people are in pain, what do they want? And particularly when they're suffering, if we think of suffering as that second hour, what do, what do we want? We mostly want to feel like we're not isolated like, we're not to blame, we're not isolated, and that someone understands us and accepts us. Something extremely simple, so that a lot of times, all that a person who's suffering really wants and needs is someone kind and open who often doesn't have to say a thing. Right? I think we know that from our own experience. I remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross once said that all that a dying person wants is someone to be there and listen and be present. And those are exactly the qualities which we cultivate in our practice, which we can, again, think of as not just being the practice on the cushion, but that which we do in daily life. And so it's something that when we're out there in the world and we're with someone who's in difficulty, that's our compassion practice, isn't it? That's where we get to develop these qualities. We watch our minds internally. We see, where am I getting a little tight or scared of this person's suffering? How can I work with that? Can I open up? Can I name it? and try to be present with it. You know, I remember, I remember in my own practice, when I was first starting, I was at a retreat, and I had a very, very difficult experience. 
You know, I felt I, I went into some kind of state where I felt like it was a little bit extreme. I felt like I had a uh, like an iron bar going through my heart. You know, very a pretty extreme experience of uh, of pain. And and it was all it was scary. It was like you know, am I going to experience this the rest of my life? <laughs> you know, is it going to kind of make me incapable of being a normal human being? And I was a little concerned. And I went to Joseph Goldstein, who I was working with at the time, you know, and I was, you know, I just, I actually just gone through a night where I hardly slept at all. And I, and I went to him and I said, I described what happened. He said, oh yeah, that happened to me once. <laughs> <laughs> I think he probably said it not, not quite so quickly. <laughs> but he, he said it in a way that it was both compassionate and no big deal. And I just, I actually didn't have any further thoughts about it. I just went on my business. And there was some way that I felt incredibly met, understood, seen, and he was present with me, and he wasn't scared. And in that moment, it was incredibly healing. It was, it was as if it was, it was all that I needed. So it's, um, I think this is, this, is, this is how we bring compassion into action in different ways. I think I want to close just with a story that uh, I, had, I had some other things I was going to talk about, about compassion in the world, in the larger world. But I think in terms of time, I'd rather uh, finish with this story and open things up. And this is a story that some of you may know, but I, I love it so much and I haven't read it for a while. It's a story that's uh, told by the Aikido teacher, uh, Terry Dobson, about the, uh, the subway train in Tokyo. Some of you may know this. <laughs> The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the uh, drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing. And he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the lap of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. This is the author. I was young then, some some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I had been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training, nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. The trouble was my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train station. My forbearance exalted me. 
I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity where I might save the innocent by totally destroying the guilty. (laughs) This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something uh, soon, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. (laughs) All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A fraction of a second before he could move, Someone shouted, hey, it was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, molten quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, then the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman, sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said, in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I would drop him in his socks. (laughs) The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know. We warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out in the garden. And we take it out in the garden and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from the ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. (laughs) It is gratifying to watch. When we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains, he looked at the, at, at the laborer, eyes twinkling. <laughs> As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His, fliss, his fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmon, too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop, 
As the door opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that's a difficult predicament. Indeed, sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on his seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. So let's just sit for maybe a minute, and then we can have some discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.